For the last few weeks, we've been looking at different conversations that Jesus has had with men like Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler. Those conversations have been evangelistic in their nature. Two of those had positive outcomes, Nicodemus and Zacchaeus, and we aren't quite certain of the final end of the rich young ruler, but at least what is recorded in Scripture about him left him as one that turned away from Christ, sorrowing because of his great possessions and his unwillingness to part with them. This morning we're going to turn to another conversation in the Gospel of John. It's in the 18th chapter, toward the end of the 18th chapter. This is the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate. You may remember that Paul, in writing to Timothy, referenced this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. I want to read you those verses before we give our attention to the 18th chapter of John. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, this is what Paul says about this conversation, and he uses it to embolden Timothy in his ministry. So let's listen to what he says. He says to Timothy, But you, O man of God, flee these things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, he, which he will make manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign or potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. How was Paul using this conversation of Jesus before Pilate to strengthen Timothy's faith, Timothy's service? Most, and I would agree, if we were to sketch the character of Timothy, we know culturally he was relatively young to be in the position he was in. Paul is repeatedly telling him not to be timid, let no one despise your youth, and those kinds of things. Some would say, and I would agree, that Timothy may have been a sickly type of person. Paul gives him some medical advice on occasion. Timothy appears to be somewhat timid about going about his work of really pastoring the church at Ephesus after Paul had left. And he tells him, in essence, just this way, and I'll paraphrase this just a bit. He basically says, Timothy, be like Jesus before Pilate. 
He witnessed the good confession before Pilate. He didn't shrink back from declaring to him the whole truth about himself and the exclusivity of faith in him alone being sufficient for eternal life. And in that sense, in that regard, this conversation of Jesus and Pilate extends to all of us. I can relate to Timothy a great deal. Probably some of you can as well. Given the opportunity before someone else, and it doesn't, have an, doesn't even have to be a man with Pilate's credentials. But given opportunity to stand before someone else and declare the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And to do it in the exclusive way that the scriptures calls us to do it is sometimes difficult. We begin to want to shrink back from that responsibility. And it is both a responsibility and a privilege to bear witness to Christ. So this good confession, this is what Paul calls it. Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession. We're going to see what the good confession is comprised of out of the conversation toward the end of John chapter 18. And let's read that now. Then I'm going to make a few points, and then, Lord helping us, seek to apply it just a bit. I'm going to begin reading in 28th verse of John 18. You'll notice this is just after Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Just after he has been denied by Peter. After he has been questioned by the high priest. This is immediately in John's context after the third denial of of Peter. Verse 27 ends with the rooster crowing. And then we pick up in verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. Now the they here in verse 28 are the religious elite of the Jews. The Sanhedrin. Who are doing nothing more than killing their Messiah. Murdering the Christ that came to save them. Who was innocent. Sinless. So they are leading Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. This is The Praetorium is Pilate's domain. This is his... Not necessarily a mansion, but this is where he would go when he was in the area. It was highly guarded. Many troops dispatched there. This is where he would pass his judgments. This is where his judgment seat was. This is where he exercised all of the authority given him by the Roman government. So this is where they bring Jesus. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. You see the hypocrisy here. They did not want to defile themselves by going into this Roman official's domain. They think nothing of defiling themselves by killing the Son of God or being party to killing the Son of God, crying for His crucifixion, crying for the shedding of His blood. They even say to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. 
And so they are filled with hypocrisy throughout this whole mock trial. Nothing done by the rules, nothing done either by their law or Roman law. So we're picking up in verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? What are you accusing him of? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, a criminal, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him. And in Jesus' answer, he asks him a question. And I think the heart of the question is to reveal to Pilate and to those who are privileged to witness this conversation, is this a sincere question of yours, or are you just parroting what you've heard? So Jesus says, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate's response, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? And the answer to that question we know is nothing. Nothing but preach the truth. Nothing but love those he came into contact with. Nothing but forgive sin. Nothing but heal the blind. Nothing but heal the lame. Nothing but feed the multitudes. Nothing but turn the water into the wine. Nothing but raise a dead man, calling him out of the tomb. What evil had he done? What had he, how had he sinned? In no way. No way whatsoever. Jesus answers in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But, my, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And my understanding here that he's using that term in mockery. And even the sign that he places over Jesus' head, which clearly reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, is done in a, in a mocking sense. So back in verse 40, they all cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. 
Now Barabbas was a robber. We know from the rest of the gospel records that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Barabbas was what we would call a seasoned, hardened criminal. And this is who the religious elite of the day are calling for to be released so that Jesus would go to be crucified. Let's pray before we look at this conversation more closely. Father in heaven, we ask you to open your word to our understanding. We ask you to bear witness of the truth, that your spirit would come and make known the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be emboldened, even as Paul's expectation was of Timothy, that given opportunity, we too would bear witness to the good confession in an unshrinking way. Father, we pray and ask these things for your glory, for the glory of Christ who spoke these words, for the good of your people and the salvation of the lost. We know we are not asking too much when we ask in his name. Amen. In a sermon on these verses, Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, if a man were to go into society and declare that he was an, that he was an agnostic, that he didn't know anything and was unsure of everything, he would receive three rounds of applause. Certainly true of our own society. Go and just say you don't know and you're open to anything good on you. Go and say something like this. Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. The three rounds of applause will go silent. And you'll hear the mocking jeers of the philosophical elite or so they suppose themselves to be. The broad-minded men of the world, those who have no real conviction, those who stand upon nothing, those who mouth words with no meaning, are applauded as being loving, gracious, and inclusive, tolerant. The narrow-minded believer in Christ, and I use narrow-minded there in the sense the scriptures use it, as we are called to enter into the narrow gate and to stay on the narrow way, the narrow-minded believer in Christ who speaks the truth about life and death, about heaven and hell, about Christ and Satan, and particularly the singularity of Christ being the only Savior, what's the response to someone like that? Hateful? You're seen as being merciless? Intolerable. You see the difference in the two. Say you believe anything and everything, and we'll take at face value someone else's belief. You're loving, you're gracious, you're merciful. Say everything else is false and only what Jesus Christ says in his gospel is true, 
You're a merciless, unforgiving bigot. There is an interesting book that I read years ago, written by D.A. Carson. Some of you will recognize that, that name. It's called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And what he's talking about there is a culture that lauds itself as being a tolerant society when pressed upon the issue of truth immediately becomes intolerant of anyone who says there is an exclusiveness to truth. Interesting book. I would commend it to you. The Intolerance of Tolerance. And how society who is operating from a pluralistic and that just means everything is true. You want it to be true, it's true for you. If you sincerely believe it, then it's sincerely true as applied to you. A society that bases all of its actions and assumptions upon that has little to do with a Christian who comes in love, unapologetically saying, the truth as it is in Jesus is the only truth. I mean, don't we know this question from Pilate so well? It's the age-old, infamous question. What is truth? And it's one that every society asks. One that every person in any society will at some point in their lives have to deal with. What is the truth? And it's nothing more than an excuse to stay away from Christ. To say something like, since there are so many truth claims, I'll believe none of them. That's just an excuse to stay away. On the other hand, I want to read you something out of Proverbs 2. You don't have to turn there, just listen. If this is the sincere and heartfelt desire of anyone struggling with what is actually true. If this is your desire... And if this is your request, the Lord's going to answer it. Here's what Proverbs says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. How will you understand it? How will you find it? The Lord will make it known to you and he will undiscover it for you. If your desire is to know the truth amidst all of the error. For the, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk uprightly. And you can finish out that second chapter of Proverbs. But the point made there, if you are desiring, the Lord will make himself known. So I wonder if you would do this. I wonder if you would, if you are this morning representative of those who are wondering what is the truth in all the error. And is this matter... Concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ as biblically presented. Is this the real truth? I wonder if you would just even now. Just in your own mind. In your own heart. Say something that accords with Proverbs chapter 2.
Will you diligently search it out? And perhaps the Lord would undiscover it for you, even here this morning. In looking at this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, I want to to break it down into three parts. Jesus' response to Pilate. First of all, he makes known very clearly that his kingdom is not of this world. Something that his own disciples did not fully realize. Just a few hours earlier, Peter had drawn the sword, cut off Malchus's ear. He was ready to defend and even die for Christ. Jesus teaches Pilate and everyone around at that point in time and us today that his kingdom primarily is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Secondly, he tells us here that he is come into the world to bear witness of the truth. There are many different ways that we could state and state rightly, why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Paul says it this way, the first of the five faithful sayings. This is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But this is the way Jesus, I guess we could say, summarizes and gives his own purpose statement for why he came. And it was to bear witness to the truth. And then thirdly, we'll see that those who hear the truth are the ones that hear the voice of Jesus. He says it this way, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You have to have an ear for the truth. Your ear has to be opened for the truth. Psalm 40 says, my ears you have Opened and the word there is dug out. Cleared the way so that we can hear. So let's rewind now and go back to this first point of Christ's kingdom not being of this world. Verse 36. After Pilate asked Jesus, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You know, Jesus had said over and over throughout the Gospels, my hour has not yet come. Well, his hour has come. He's in that hour But here he is saying, even in this hour of my betrayal, my denial by one of my closest disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And as such, what Jesus was saying to Pilate really was my kingdom is no threat to the Roman government. Jesus did not collect taxes as the Romans did, so it was no threat to their financial prosperity. Jesus did not assemble armies, so it was no threat to their military presence. He said, since this is so, 
Since this is not so, my servants do not fight with the sword. So how does the kingdom of Christ, not being of this world, how does it advance? How does it prosper? How does it take in subjects? Well, we know from the rest of the scriptures that that's done through spiritual means. Paul speaks of the weapons of our warfare. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he deals with what we call the Christian soldier, the armor of God. Our warfare is not one of the world. It is fought in the spiritual realm and it is fought with the means that the Lord himself has provided. Primarily the word of God, inspired of the spirit, used of the spirit in the lives of believers to promote his kingdom, which is not of this world, in the world. This is the way the servants of Christ Fight, not with sword, not with violence, but with the truth. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king? Back in verse 33, he asked him plainly again, Are you the king of the Jews? After some diagnostic questions and interaction, Jesus gets straight to the point. In verse 37, you say rightly that I am a king. When Paul uses this conversation to Timothy, is it any wonder why his, how his mind continues to run through that? We read it, king of kings, lord of lords, the only sovereign, the only potentate. He's drawing right off of Jesus before Pilate. Now, so that we get an understanding of who Pilate is. Pilate was the man in charge. Pilate had all the authority in this setting. Pilate's word, whatever he said, went. Unquestioned. This makes Christ's courage... In the face of it all, even the more notable. He says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. And here's the cause. That I should bear witness to the truth. Isn't that what he did? From at least age 12 when he was reasoning with the teachers up until this very point. Teaching, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching and teaching the truth. Of course that's what he's done. He's bearing witness to it even before Pilate. And then we get to this third part of this and the, this, the end of this statement, the end of Jesus' words in this part of the conversation. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I don't suppose Pilate realized that this was an invitation of sorts, but it was. 
This was his opportunity to hear the truth. How would he respond? Was he of the truth and would hear the voice of Christ or not? Well, his reply to that question in verse 39 tells us all we need to know. Pilate says, what is truth? Now, let's try to think from Pilate's point of view. He had heard, no doubt, the Roman and Greek philosophers banter back and forth. He knew about the Greek gods, so they were called. He had heard, like the people of our own society in our own day, he had heard many truth claims. And he had come to the conclusion, apparently by his reply, he had come to the conclusion that there was no absolute, foundational, rock-bottom truth. Truth is what you want it to be. That's the society we live in. Truth is what you want it to be. As Christians and those who believe the scriptures and those who understand that we do have a king and that his name is Jesus and that he came to bear witness of the truth, then we know that none of that is true. What is it? What is truth? Well, let's rehearse just a few things from the scriptures in an attempt to answer Pilate's question. Certainly this will not be exhaustive, but we can learn a few things very easily and simply from the scriptures. The truth is that Christ is the Son of God. The truth is that at a point in time, he gave up all of those benefits of being the Son of God, set those aside, entered into his own creation. That's the truth. But we could rewind even further than that. The truth is that in the beginning, God created everything. Male and female, he created them in his own image and he gave them commands. One of those commands was transgressed, resulting in the fall of mankind through Adam's disobedience. That's the truth. Another part of the larger and whole truth is that the reason that Christ came was to reverse the curse that Adam had brought upon mankind. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 5 speaks of Jesus as being the second Adam. The one who would not fail. The one who would not fall prey to the temptation of Satan, which is proven Early in Christ's ministry at the beginning, week through 40 days of fasting, Satan comes to him and tempts him in far more greater ways than Adam was ever tempted. And Christ stands through all of that, untainted by sin. That's the truth. The truth is he lived a perfect life in obedience to the commands and laws of God. The truth is that he never sinned. The truth is even more than that. He couldn't sin. Being the son of God. 
The truth is that his father in heaven, who had authored this plan of salvation in eternity past with his son, says on different occasions in the scripture through a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That's the truth. The truth is that Jesus, being the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, of which all of that Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to, would at a specific point in time in history bear the sins of his people. That's the truth. That the Father in heaven would reckon his sinless, spotless Son as being sin. You know the verse, 2 Corinthians. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin. What does that mean? The Father considered the sinless Son of God as the very culmination of sin itself. The very end of all sin. When you read through the Gospels and you read this account of the crucifixion of Jesus, you have seen there... The strange happenings at Calvary, right? The darkness at midday. Graves being opened. All of that impressing upon us the gravity and the magnitude of just how far God the Father went in considering and reckoning His Son to be sin for us. That's the truth. The truth is that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, felt this very keenly. Echoing the Psalms, he would say upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the truth. The truth is that he would, even in that great agony and misery, Dispense mercy to one of the thieves crucified next to him. You remember his words. Today you will be with me in paradise. The truth is that he hung upon the cross after enduring what would kill most men. The scourging of the Roman officials. The mockery. The beating, the spitting upon, the crown of thorns being placed into his head, being nailed to the cross. He endured all of that, and that's the truth. The truth is that he endured all of that to the very end. The truth is his life was not taken, it was given. He gave up his spirit. It was not wrenched away from him. It was not taken against his will. He willingly gave himself up. That's the truth. Why did he do it? Well, we've read recently the truth concerning Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He did it because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever will believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the truth. But there's more. The truth is that 
after Jesus gave up his spirit that Nicodemus, the same one he had conversed with in John 3, and Joseph of Arimathea came and cared for his broken, beaten, battered, and bloodied body. And they buried it in a tomb. That's the truth. The truth is Jesus really died. So many would say, no, he just fainted. So many would say he just swooned. There's the whole swoon theory of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the end of that basically says he was buried alive. That's falsehood. That's error. That's damning heresy. It's not the truth. The truth is he was buried because he had actually, really given himself upon the cross of Calvary. For the sin of his own. But if we stop there. Then we stop too short. The truth is that he. Really. Bodily. Physically. Was resurrected. From the grave. Paul introduces the book of Romans by saying that God bore witness and record to the fact that Jesus was his son by raising him from the dead. That's the truth. The truth is, for the space of a few weeks, 40 days, he he ministered to his disciples. He continued to teach them. He restored Peter. He told them, go to Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to send the Spirit, but I I won't send the Spirit until I return to my Father. And so the Spirit is seen in Scripture as having been sent from both the Father and the Son. And then the truth is, He ascended back into heaven. Mission accomplished. The truth is, He is even now seated at the Father's right hand. Interceding for us. I don't know if you know it or not, but that hymn we sang out of the folder is actually a very, very old hymn. Not printed in many hymnals. Before the throne of God above. We have a high priest whose name is Love interceding on our behalf. One of of my favorite parts of that hymn that I can so relate to And I know you can. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the sin that is within, what do you do? If you continue to peer inside and see all the sin, you will despair. But if you look upward and see him who has made an end to all your sin, then where does despair go? Out the window. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. The truth is, if you will have eternal life with Him, you will come to Him on His terms. The truth is, if you hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you hear the Word of God, and you respond to it in a way that He has drawn you. The truth is. He has found you. 
He left the 99 and he came, laid his arms on you, picked you up, carried you to the fold. That's the truth. So we go back to Pilate's question. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And can't you hear the mocking tone in Pilate's voice? Almost a chuckle. What is the truth? What is it? I've heard so much that's claimed to be truth. Here's the irony. Truth is standing in front of him. Did Jesus not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Pilate's asking the question, what is it, when it's standing in front of him? Here's not just the irony, but the sadness, the absolute sadness of our day and every day past and every day future. That there are those who are represented here by Pilate as to asking, what is the truth when Christ is right in front of them? You've been raised in a Christian home. Christ is right there, sitting in front of you, presented. Every time your parent or a sibling, an older sibling, would read from the Scripture, there is Christ. Every time you enter into the assembly of the saints, of those that Christ has called out of the world and imparted His Spirit in them and has given them His Word, and they are striving to be obedient to it, there's the truth again. There's Christ again. And can you not see yourself here as represented by this man, Pilate, when the truth is right in front of him? Our phrase is, it's staring you in the face. Literally, the truth was staring Pilate in the face. And he turned and walked away from it, condemned Christ to death, supposing to clear himself, washes his hands of the whole matter. So this is how it ends in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. We're not going to get to the the end of this conversation in verse 11 other than just reading it. But I want to deal with verses 39 and 40 before I close the The end of this conversation. In verse 8 and 9 of the 19th chapter. Jesus gives him no answer. Now I don't know exactly why he doesn't answer. But I can suppose that it's because he's already told him everything he needs to know. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus replies, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. But let's go back to verse 39 and 40. Because embedded in these verses is the truth of salvation. Pilate says, you have a custom. That custom is that I should release someone to you at the Passover. The Passover, the greatest feast of the Jews. 
the Roman official, recognizing the festivities and all of this, released the prisoner. It's just a custom. And so he says, do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Again, in a mocking sense. Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And then the little detail about Barabbas, he was a robber. You see what's happened here? The guilty, vile, condemned justly, insurrectionist, murdering robber set free the sinless, spotless Lamb of God taken to be crucified. I don't know that there's a greater picture of substitution in the scriptures than Barabbas. Why does Barabbas walk free, guilty as he was? Only because the Son of God was taken to the cross. Can you see yourself in Barabbas? Why did you go free? Were you guilty of sin? Yes. Was I guilty of sin? Yes. But why did I get to walk away free? Only. This is the truth. Only because Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross as your substitute. If Barabbas had been taken and crucified, scourged, beaten, it would have all been just. He had deserved it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the fact that he walked free was scandalous. The fact that Christ went as one condemned, scandalous. But let me tell you the good news. That's what the gospel is, right? Good news. Though you are imprisoned in sin like Barabbas, and you're there justly, you've committed sin, I've committed sin. Here's the good news. You can get out. You can't cut the bars yourself and make an escape. But there is one who has said in eternity past. That he was willing to die for you. That you could go free. He was willing to be considered sin by his father. So that the scoundrel that I was. Could walk free. That's the message of the gospel. We call it the theological term. Substitutionary atonement. I could not pay for my sin. I had to have someone intervene. Someone had to stand before a holy and righteous God. And it was Christ. The justice of God demanded blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. My blood would have been insufficient. So would have yours. Ours collectively wouldn't have mattered. Because it's all tainted by sin. But the shedding of the blood of the sinless God-man has redeemed countless thousands unto himself. That's the truth. Will you believe the truth? 
shut your ear to all the falsehood and error and quit hiding behind the excuse, what is the truth? Like Pilate. And bow in submission to the truth that is standing right in front of you. Christ died for you. Will you believe it? If you do, you have believed into the saving of your soul. If you do not, you'll be just like the rich man who fared sumptuously every day the moment he died went into the place of eternal torment. That's the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the courage of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not shrinking from the moment. Not shrinking from the power of the man before him. But stating clearly that he was the truth. That he had a kingdom that is not of the world. He was the king. He is the king of this kingdom. And all who hear his voice will come to a knowledge of the truth. So we plead with you, the great shepherd of the sheep, that you would call more sheep out by name, that you would open their ears, give them an ear to hear, and they would come running to salvation. Father, we ask you to do it for the glory of Christ, our Savior. We ask you to do it so there's another voice added to the choir of those singing his praises through all eternity. We ask you to do it in his name.